Uh, good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Ben White. I'm one of the directors of the Australian Centre for Health Law Research here in the Faculty of Law at QUT. And with my colleague, Lindy Wilmot, who's the other director of the centre, uh, I would like to welcome you here tonight to the uh, centre's fifth annual public oration. Uh, before I be begin, in keeping with the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather here today and acknowledge uh, their elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the many guests we have here tonight. It's tremendous to see so many people here at QUT uh, to talk about and discuss some interesting and important issues. So thank you for coming. It is of course clear why you are here tonight, the opportunity to see Justice Kirby discuss one of the pressing global issues in health law and policy is not one to be missed. But before I introduce him, I might just briefly tell you a little bit about the annual oration and the centre and how it came to be established. So the oration is the, the major event of the centre each year. Uh, and just a bit about our research centre. Our research group has 21 academics all working on different parts of health law. Um, we're supported by a centre coordinator, an administrator, uh, a very enthusiastic and committed group of research assistants working on various projects with us, as well as a vibrant group of PhD students. So in short, it's a tremendous group. It's a real privilege to be here with such a critical mass all working together on the important and challenging issues of health law of the day. The centre's research spans the field of health law uh, from the beginning of life and children's health uh, through to the end of life as well. Uh, we have a third program in our research group and it's governance and regulation of healthcare. And that's the topic, uh, the, the program within which tonight's topic falls. So an important goal of our centre uh, is to make a difference. So this of course requires top quality research, but that's in itself uh, not enough to make a difference. More is needed. So our research is also interested in trying to take that out into public policy debates and to the community public debate as well. Um, and the goal is overall to try and improve the safety, quality and accessibility of healthcare in Australia and internationally. So, and as I said, research is not enough, it just sits on its shelf. We had some discussion this afternoon at a, at a workshop about that. It has to get out there to actually make a difference, to be part of a public policy and a public debate. And this oration forms part of that goal, uh, to hold an annual lecture open to the public on a topic of significance for the health law field and the wider community as well. And for that lecture to be delivered by an internationally recognised expert. Uh, tonight, we are honoured to have Justice Kirby deliver the fifth annual public oration, and it's my pleasure to introduce him. Uh, Justice Michael Kirby, ACCMG, is one of Australia's most distinguished and influential jurists, educators and social justice advocates. When he retired from the High Court of Australia in February of 2000, uh, 2009, he was the country's longest serving judge. Uh, he had roles with, as Deputy President of the Australian Conciliation Arbitration Commission, as Chairman of the Australian Law Reform Commission, and his judicial appointments included additionally as the Judge of the Federal Court, as President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, President of the Court of Appeal of the Solomon Islands, and as I mentioned before, he was a Justice of the High Court from 1996 to 2009. Uh, Justice Kirby has also been very, very active in international affairs for the United Nations, the Commonwealth Secretariat, the OECD, the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, to name a few. He's been active in civil society, being elected president of the International Commission of Jurists. And for this body of work in 2010, he was awarded the prestigious Gruber Justice Prize. His recent, recent international activities, and I should mention this is just a brief snapshot 
uh, included as a member of the Eminent Persons Group on the Future of the Commonwealth of Nations, Commissioner of the UNDP Global Commission on HIV and the Law, Chairman of the UN Commission of Inquiry on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North, North Korea, very topical and timely today, and member of the UN Secretary-General's high-level panel on access to medicines, and it's this latter work which he'll be talking about tonight. I did want to mention, in addition to all this impressive, eminent work, uh, one of uh, Justice Kirby's great contributions is not only to, to do the, the high-level stuff, but actually to take the time to talk with community, with academics, with practitioners, with a range of people, so that that important work actually reaches the, the, the grassroots, the coalface. Uh, and tonight's event is just one such example of that. Uh, please join me with welcoming Justice Kirby, who will present the fifth ACLA annual public oration entitled Human Rights Meets Global Pharma. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, and I acknowledge the presence uh, here of Professor John Humphrey, the uh, Dean of, uh, Executive Dean of the Law School, uh, and many other friends, old and new. Uh, that is to say, old in length of time, not necessarily old in years. I'm the only one who's really old in years here today. Uh, I acknowledge the indigenous people of our country, and I remind myself and everyone here present of the many wrongs that were done uh, to the Indigenous people of Australia in the law, uh, of the fact that you can right wrongs, and that uh, the court of which I was honoured to be a member, the High Court of Australia, uh, ultimately, under the leadership of a great Queensland judge, uh, Justice uh, Gerard Brennan, um, took steps to right the wrong of the disadvantage, economic disadvantage, spiritual disadvantage of um, the lack of land rights for the Aboriginal people. Uh, and so we, especially those of us who are lawyers, can face injustice and look it in the eyes and can resolve that we will take steps to rectify wrongs. And that is our human responsibility and uh, it's about the rectification of wrongs in the area of universal health care that I am here to speak tonight. I honour the Australian Centre for Health Law Research. Um, I have seen it grow. I was here at the beginning and I'm here now and I'll keep coming back to keep uh, observing what it has been doing. I've had an absolutely wonderful day. Mind you, Professor Humphrey, I think, has been trained in the school of Kim Jong-un. I think he's Kim Jong-un because he believes in working his, uh, his uh, guests um, in an extremely vigorous fashion. And I think <laughs> this is my seventh lecture today. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we're getting there and we're going to have an interactive session and uh, after a presentation uh, we will have Q&A and I hope you will think up some interesting questions uh, that I can seek to answer. In my remarks I'm going to 
talk first of all about the background that led me into the area of uh, international health law uh, and the work um, of the United Nations high-level panel on access to essential medicines, to which I was appointed by the uh, former Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, in one of the most important of the last series of steps he took as Secretary General, he took a bold, controversial, and in some circles, unpopular step of establishing a high-level panel for the purpose of examining the interrelationship of um, intellectual property law, uh, patents mainly, uh, and uh, the universal right to health. Uh, he was criticised, criticised strongly for doing that. Uh, we were criticised, but we had his commission and his mandate, and we just got on with it and produced our report. And this is the report, which was produced in a year and which dealt with the issues of um, the policy incoherences between intellectual property law and uh, health law, and I am going to talk about that at the centre of these remarks. <clears throat> Before I get to that, however, I'm going to explain how I took a journey on the way to working in that particular area, which is not an area in which many lawyers work. It's an area in which the members of the Australian Centre for Health Law Research work, and at a very high level, as I saw in a workshop that I just took part in, which happily had present um, scholars in this area from other universities in Brisbane and Australia. It was good to see such a wonderful mixture of top talent working in the area in which I had been labouring. And if only uh, the members of the high-level panel could have seen the brain power that was addressed to the issues which we addressed, uh, in Brisbane, Australia, I think they would have been very impressed. And I'm going to tell them about it when I go over to Geneva uh, in March for a presentation to the Human Rights Council of the United Nations on this very matter. Uh, so um, that is in the centre of my remarks. I'll get to that by describing how the United Nations, how the Secretary General and how we got to the high-level panel. Uh, I'll tell you where the work of the high-level panel now is in the system of the United Nations. And finally, I'm going to uh, make remarks in the nature of breaking news. I think we deserve a bit of breaking news this afternoon uh, about a conference I attended last week for the United Nations, for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, in Bellagio in Italy, by Lake Como. Uh, very, very beautiful, but very, very cold last week at the Rockefeller Center on the interesting subject, to which I'll come at the end of my remarks, of the overreach of criminal law in national systems and the way in which such overreach breaches the universal principles of human rights and how the 
uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights is now looking at that generic problem, which includes uh, the overreach uh, of the law into areas of women's reproductive health, the overreach of areas of the criminal law in relation to LGBT criminal offences, gay offences, uh, the overreach in respect of the punishment of drug users, uh, and the uh, overreach in respect of the matter of suicide and assisted suicide. This is the problem of medically assisted um, uh, end of life decisions. So uh, if you don't find what I'm going to say about big pharma and human rights controversial enough, I'm saving up to the end a few nice little uh, hot potatoes which we were labouring on uh, in Bellagio, Italy last week and which have connection to healthcare because of course uh, the issues of women's reproductive health, drug use, uh, suicide and assistant suicide are all not only highly controversial but they're very relevant to issues of healthcare and therefore they're relevant to my remarks today. Now, in 2011, I was appointed to be a member of uh, a so-called eminent persons group. I rather liked that title. It seemed entirely suitable for a superannuated, pensioned off justice of the High Court to find some relevance in life after all, after leaving the big building by the lake in Canberra. Uh, and this was looking at a whole range of issues of um, law and policy in Commonwealth countries that were um, holding the Commonwealth of Nations, the Commonwealth countries back. And amongst the many issues that were dealt with, one of them, by the way, was the issue of an issue of great concern and interest to me, which is the fact that in the 54 countries of the Commonwealth, 44 still retain the criminal laws against adult consensual gay sexual activity. That's uh, 44 out of 54 countries still have those laws, which we got rid of in Australia in the 1970s to the 1990s. But one of the issues that was addressed by the, high, by the, um, the eminent persons group was the fact that um, intellectual property law was falling unevenly on Commonwealth countries and uh, some Commonwealth countries being ranked as middle income countries, although the income wasn't uh, divided um, equally within the countries, but on a pure GDP per capita, they were middle income countries and so they lost particular protection in uh, the intellectual property systems of the world under the World Trade Organization for their status. And uh, the Commonwealth countries concerned wanted the Commonwealth to do something about it. And we in the eminent persons group put this on the agenda for the Commonwealth to act upon. Not much has been done by the Commonwealth in the intervening years. But this opened my eyes to an issue of justice affecting um, many developing countries of the way in which 
the global system of intellectual property run by the um, World Trade Organization substantially uh, was impacting countries uh, of the developing world and in a way that seemed unjust, uh, disproportional and in a way that interfered with their capacity to bring health care to their population. So that, as it were, opened my eyes and gave me a glimpse of what was going on in the world. And then in 2012, uh, I took part in a body called the United Nations Development Program Global Commission on HIV and the Law. This was a body uh, which was chaired by a very distinguished um, lawyer and politician, uh, the former president of Brazil, President Cardozo. He was a centre-right uh, uh, politician who had led Brazil away from military dictatorship and had established an effective civilian government, uh, which is still the way Brazil is governed, uh, with a few ups and downs and hiccups lately, but uh, Cardozo was a very clever uh, lawyer and economist. Uh, and the purpose of the high-level panel was to look at where, uh, the purpose of the Global Commission was to look at where in the world the um, laws and policies of countries were interfering with successful strategies to tackle the AIDS epidemic. So that's what it was, it was specific to AIDS and it was looking at what were the legal impediments to dealing effectively with the epidemic. And the, uh, the, high, the um, Global Commission identified some pretty well-worn and well-known categories that where the law was actually an impediment to handling successfully countries' HIV epidemics. Uh, these were countries with uh, laws that criminalise sex workers. Uh, sex work can be a way in which uh, HIV is spread. And if, for example, you prosecute a person uh, for sex work and use as evidence that they are a sex worker, that they have condoms on them, then you interfere with their capacity to protect themselves and by protecting themselves to protect their clients and by protecting their clients to protect the families uh, of the person's concern. So that was one group. Another group uh, were uh, injecting drug users. Uh, if you uh, criminalise injecting drug users, then you put them outside the messages of the fact that there's a very dangerous virus about, HIV, uh, and you remove their empowerment to deal with their involvement in the risks of that epidemic and protect themselves and thereby protect their sexual and other partners uh, and stop the epidemic spreading. You know, one of the great stories in Australia of the 1980s, one of the really great stories, uh, when we get a bit disillusioned with our politicians, is to remember Neil Blewett, the Minister for Health in the Hawke Labor government, and Peter Bohm, who was the Shadow Minister for Health 
appointed by Mr Howard in the coalition parties, who came together in the face of the AIDS epidemic in Australia and agreed that we would take quite radical steps to protect Australia from the spread of HIV, including by needle exchange. We were in the middle of our war on drugs, but we took this step and the result is that we in Australia have one of the lowest rates of HIV transmission in the injecting drug population and that is tremendously important because that can be the vector by which um, the uh, virus gets into a general population. Uh, in Australia, in New Zealand, the rate of HIV in the injecting drug population, because they got there first, is 1%. 1% of injectors are HIV positive. In Australia, it's 2%. Uh, in Canada, where they have intermittent arrangements of needle exchange, it's about 18%. In the United States, it's about 30%. 30% of injectors are HIV positive. And uh, in Russia, it's about 50%, because they won't do anything to protect the injecting population. We had to take quite radical steps, and fortunately we had those two politicians. It just happened that Neil Blewett was the Minister for Health, and he took the lead, and Peter Bohm, who Mr Howard appointed as his shadow Minister for Health, was a Professor of Public Health, and he agreed. And so they got together, they worked out this strategy. It was very unpopular with police commissioners at the time, including, I think, in Queensland. Uh, but it went ahead, and we've saved thousands and thousands of lives as a result. <clears throat> so the Global Commission went through all these groups, uh, gay men, uh, refugees, prisoners, uh, groups exposed to HIV transmission, and said, these are the things, if you're serious about HIV, you've got to do. You may not want to do it, you may not want to get rid of the laws against gay men, but if whilst you've got it, they are going to be outside the messages and you've got to stop it and you've got to remove those laws and that way you will help to bring down the rates of uh, infection. Uh, but there was a sixth chapter of the report and this was a very novel, it was a new chapter and it was about intellectual property law. Now, the other chapters were pretty well-worn territory by the 19, by 2012, pretty well-worn territory. Everyone knew uh, in the area of HIV, you've got to be, you've got to have a sort of uh, contra-suggestible policy. You've got to do something that is paradoxical, and you've got to do something that you wouldn't sort of think you have to do, but doing it is good for the epidemic, stopping the epidemic. But the sixth chapter was on another area where the law was actually an impediment to the effective strategy against HIV. <clears throat> and this was in the area of intellectual property. And so in the sixth chapter, the um, Global Commission outlined the developments that had happened in the field of HIV uh, in respect of the antiretroviral drugs which were discovered in the mid-1990s and which were bene very beneficial for, uh, first, uh, getting people back to feeling okay and then getting them back to work. And then 
reducing their viral load and then reducing their capacity to spread the virus to other people. This was treatment as prevention, a very wonderful development that happened because of science in the invention of the antiretroviral drugs in the middle of the 1990s. But the problem was that this area uh, had begun to face the, the um, impediment of the operation of global intellectual property law. This was the law that had been developed under the aegis of the World Trade Organization in the 1990s in the so-called TRIPS Agreement. You'll hear in this discourse lots of reference to the TRIPS Agreement. That merely stands for the trade in uh, uh, intellectual property uh, related areas of the law, TRIPS. And that area of the uh, law uh, had imposed upon countries who wanted to be members of the World Trade Organization for the benefits of trade advances in their society, they had to sign up to the protection of intellectual property of other members of the World Trade Organization. And effectively that meant that little countries like Vietnam or Cambodia or uh, other countries when they joined the World Trade Organization had to sign up to protecting and respecting the intellectual property of big powerful economies such as the European Union, the United States of America, Japan, Switzerland, and the inventors of uh, drugs uh, and medicines. Now it's a curious thing looking back in history that uh, the provision of intellectual property protection patents um, is a relatively new development in the area of pharmaceuticals. Uh, until the 1970s, most countries of the world didn't provide for, didn't allow intellectual property, patent law protection that gave a monopoly for a time to the inventor. They basically took the view in most countries, well, this is something precious. It deals with human life and human suffering. And therefore, this isn't like a steam engine or it isn't like another invention with wheels and cogs and so on. This is something that is outside the field of patents. But by the 1970s and 80s, more and more countries were securing patents in this area. And by the 1990s, with the TRIPS agreement, the World Trade Organization has said to the world, if you want to join us in this group, then you have to protect intellectual property. And if you don't want to do that, well, you don't join the World Trade Organization, get the advantages of the World Trade Organization. And so um, when the Global Commission uh, on HIV and the Law in 2012 looked at this problem, we then started to examine what had been happening with the World Trade Organization. And what was happening was that the World Trade Organization was supporting free trade agreements by which countries would um, negotiate with each other or with a region and a group and agree to certain provisions and often, it was discovered, agree to impose higher requirements than 
uh, the TRIPS agreement itself required and to impose what were called TRIPS plus obligations that um, meant that those countries, even if they had a health crisis, couldn't have an exception to the patenting of intellectual, of getting the intellectual property on, uh, on pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical drugs, uh, diagnostic tests, uh, vaccines, and other therapies. And so the world, the uh, Global Commission on HIV and the law drew to attention this sixth category that needed attention of the international community. And so it called to the attention of the Secretary General and said, the Secretary General should summon an, uh, an interagency expert body to look at this clash between intellectual property and uh, the right to health uh, and try to find a better reconciliation than exists at the moment, particularly as countries are under pressure to sign up the free trade agreements which require them to give super uh, entitlements to the holders of intellectual property protection patents. Uh, now this sounds all a bit complicated, and it is complicated, but it's really very important because we're talking here about life and death and access to drugs. And in the run-up to the availability of the HIV drugs, when the antiretroviral drugs became available in the mid-1990s, two countries stood out uh, in protecting their people and others against the operation of these obligations under the TRIPS agreement. One was uh, Brazil and the other was India. And in effect, because of the then state of the Indian patent law, India became a pharmacy for the world. And India began producing generic copies of drugs and began making them available to people uh, in India and outside India. India began supplying the generic drugs to Africa. And Africa was the, the, the centerpiece, it still is, of the HIV epidemic. Uh, and the net result of this that was that when the HIV antiretroviral drugs came about, uh, a course of antiretroviral drugs in the first years that they were available cost on the market 10,000 US dollars per person per year, $10,000. And of course, the numbers of people in poor communities of India, Africa, Caribbean, Latin America, where the epidemic was in a very serious state that could afford $10,000 uh, was a very small. But then when the Indian and Brazilian generics became available, the price of the um, antiretroviral drugs fell from 10,000 very rapidly to 3,000, to 2,000, to 1,000, and then down to $100 a year per person. And when that happened, immediately people started to dream of the possibility of making antiretroviral drugs to, available to everyone who needed it. And 
it was at that time that a most unexpected person took an interest in this. And I'm referring to President George W. Bush. Now, we don't usually think of George W. Bush as a bleeding heart. <laughs> He's looking better and better at the moment. <laughs> <clears throat> but George W. Bush uh, said, we've got to do something about this. This is an attack on the whole global community and it'll affect us all because unless we can control it in Africa and India, it's just going to be um, uh, everywhere and we've got to stop it for the sake of Americans and for the sake of the world. And so he supported PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS, and also the establishment of the Global Fund, you've probably heard of the Global Fund against AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, and that was provided with billions of dollars uh, generously given, mainly by the United States of America under George W. Bush, and also by Australia and other countries, because if AIDS goes rampant in the Pacific Islands, we're going to be involved. Everyone's involved in this. But no one could have dreamed of that at the state of the cost of the antiretrovirals being $10,000 per person. It just would not have been possible. But when they sank down to 100, and they've sunk further now, it became possible to dream of getting everyone on the antiretrovirals. Uh, and uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, we've got 18 million people throughout the world uh, receiving very cheap or free antiretroviral drugs. And that means they are less sick, they can look after their families, they can get back to work, they're not just a bag of bones wheeled into the hospitals, they are people who are reclaiming life and their, retro, their, their uh, viral load has fallen so they're not going to be infecting so many others and the epidemic will start petering out, that's the theory of it. Uh, of course, we could do better because there are now, it's estimated, about 35 million people who could now benefit in the here and now if they had antiretrovirals. Uh, and therefore, we're not at the end of this road, but we've done a tremendous lot. But as the Global Commission on HIV and Law pointed out, uh, first, uh, this battle hasn't been won, and second, this is emblematic of how we should be treating other conditions. Why just AIDS? Why not all the other conditions which mean life and death to a human being? When I was at primary school, my teacher, Mr Gorringe, in um, fifth class, um, in 1949, gave me a copy of a little document which had come from UN headquarters in New York uh, and it was called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It had been developed by a committee under that great American uh, woman, widow of the president, Eleanor Roosevelt in 1948. And it's interesting to reflect on the fact that in that Universal Declaration of Human Rights there are two provisions one of which essentially states the right to health, the obligation of states to 
protect essential health care. And in another provision, it says that everyone is entitled to the benefits of science, but in getting those benefits, the authors are entitled to uh, proper rewards for sharing their inventions with society. So that in Eleanor's document, there was this statement of the duality, the obligation uh, to um, get everybody essential health care, uh, and the obligation of those who are taking the benefits of inventions to provide rewards for those inventors who share them with society. And the reconciliation of those two human rights has never effectively been done. What's happened is the trading countries of the world in the World, Health, world, world Trade Organization, which is not a UN agency, it's a private organization, a kind of cartel, um, have uh, got together and imposed obligations of patent protection. And this was drawn to notice, and we recommended the Secretary General should establish uh, an agency to look at this. And then the years started to tick by. This was 2012. Nothing was done in 2013. Nothing was done in 2014. And we thought, well, it is a hot potato, and it's sort of semi-understandable that Ban Ki-moon is not going to act on this. But lo and behold, in September 2015, the United Nations adopted one of the important strategies that Ban Ki-moon had been urging, which was the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals. You've probably heard of the Millennium Development Goals. Mr. Kevin Rudd, when he was Prime Minister, kept going around talking about MDGs, and nobody knew what it meant. They had to ask, what is it? It's the Millennium Development Goals. But when the Millennium Development Goals were spent in 2015, Ban Ki-moon established the Sustainable Development Goals. And goal number um, three of the Sustainable Development Goals is the obligation by 2030 to make sure that essential health care is available to people everywhere. Now, you can have a debate about what is essential health care, but the fundamental <clears throat> is to ensure that health care that makes the difference between life and death and great suffering and getting by is essential health care. And the ideal that is put before the international community, which is an ideal rather similar to the Global Fund and the PEPFAR, is we have enough in common with fellow human beings everywhere that this should be our goal for 2030. And soon after that was adopted uh, in the Sustainable Development Goals unanimously by uh, the United Nations General Assembly in September 2015, Ban Ki-moon signed off on the creation of the high-level panel. And the high-level panel was then created. Uh, its two co-chairs were Madame Ruth Dreyfus, who had been the president of the Swiss Confederation, and uh, Mr Festus Mogai, who had been the president of Botswana. So you had two people who had been heads of government of their countries and they were established to be the leaders of this group. And I was appointed 
to the high-level panel by Ban Ki-moon, uh, and uh, I was also appointed to be the chair of the technical advisory group, which advised the high-level panel on legal and other issues. And so uh, we met uh, on a number of occasions uh, in uh, New York at the centre, at the Secretariat of the United Nations. We also had public hearings in uh, London, uh, in South Africa, and by video link to uh, Bangkok in Thailand. Uh, and uh, we sought to get agreement on what we should recommend for this policy incoherence which had emerged in the interface of intellectual property and patents. Now I want to quickly make this problem concrete. The very day we had our first meeting in New York, there was a news item on the front page of the uh, New York Times and also USA Today and all the papers about a hedge funder. And the hedge funder um, had done an analysis of a particular small pharmaceutical company which had done the intellectual property and the research work and had a drug which was proving very useful in the treatment of forms of cancer. And the cost of the drug uh, at the time was about uh, 190 US dollars uh, per patient per year. The head funder did an analysis uh, of uh, what would happen if he took over that company and then put up the prices of the drug. And he proposed, and his shareholders agreed, that they should take over the company, take over the patents, and put up the prices of the drugs, not 6%, not 10%, not 100%, but 4,000%. And the net result of that was that there was an outcry. People began to say, this is outrageous. You are treating our lives uh, as just a plaything of the market, and that cannot be right in matters of life and death. The law should not allow that. But there was nothing. He said, I'm doing nothing wrong. Uh, my duty is to shareholders. I've analysed... Uh, the market, and I think this is going to be to the betterment of the, um, of the money that will become available for investment on innovation, um, but there was no guarantee that it would be ploughed back into innovation, and in fact there's been a, a real fall in innovation in drugs uh, in recent times. So uh, that was a big outcry. At the time we were meeting uh, in our high-level panel, we had public hearings. And for me, the most powerful stories at the public hearings were of young people in Africa who had been exposed to tuberculosis. Uh, and uh, in parts of Africa and in parts of India, uh, there has developed a so-called multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And these are forms of tuberculosis that the old traditional 
remedies, which were quite effective, will not be effective. And in fact, the number of diseases which are developing in our world, which are multi-drug resistant, is very great. And the amount of money being spent on trying to find new antibiotics uh, to overcome multi-drug resistant problems is uh, really not keeping up with the dimension and urgency of the problem. Uh, and so the stories that were given of the suffering of people in these situations and of the lack of medical care and of the great expense of such care as was available really took me back into the time before the antiretroviral drugs plunged in their prices. We were back in that age. But the most interesting speech or, or presentation that came to us in the meeting of the high-level panel was from the, an ambassador of the Netherlands who came along to speak to us. I'm not talking about somebody from a poor country and I'm not talking about a, a, a person from a country that doesn't have its own skills in medical research. I'm talking about the Netherlands, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, a very advanced country. And this ambassador came along and said, please don't think this issue of the overpricing of drugs is a problem only of the developing countries. This is a big problem for the Netherlands. We simply cannot afford the costs that are being levied on drugs which are essential for the health care of, of our citizens. They are demanding drugs that will make the difference between life and death. We have to find that in the budget and the overpricing is intolerable to the Netherlands. Now that was a very interesting uh, submission. In the law we have a principle that if somebody comes along and says something that appears to be against their economic or other interests, you sit up and you listen very carefully because that's something which is probably accurate. And that's what the ambassador of the Netherlands did. Uh, at the time, we had material placed before us about the costs of the new drug which had been developed by someone else but had been taken over by a big pharmaceutical corporation for the treatment of hepatitis C. Now hepatitis C is a very debilitating and left untreated a fatal, often a fatal condition. It's a very prevalent condition. It's particularly prevalent in some countries. Uh, it's for example very prevalent in, in Egypt. Uh, it's to do with lack of hygiene in hospitals and other things, and it's to do in Western countries with injecting druggies. Uh, and uh, this drug in the United States of America is sold on the market for uh, $84,000. And people have to have it because the course, if faithfully administered over 12 weeks, can not only palliate the condition and make the person feel better and be better, it can actually rid the body of the hepatitis C virus. So it's a tremendously valuable, life-saving drug. And the company, which has the patent, said to the United States government, it's cheaper for you to pay us $84,000 than to pay hospital bills for very long periods and very expensive treatment and end-of-life decisions 
when people are totally crippled, so it's cheaper, just pay up. Uh, we, we don't know, I don't think it's been revealed what the cost in Australia is, but the National Pharmaceutical uh, Benefit Scheme accepted this drug for Australia and it is available to everyone in Australia under our National Health Scheme who is uh, sick with hepatitis C. Uh, it, it, rumours suggest that it was in Australia about $54,000. That's all, still an awful lot of money. Uh, and in other countries, in Egypt, they said we'll make it available for $800. And these are the differentials, but these are not differentials that are decided by some principle of equity or some principle of justice, by some impartial body. These are the market. The owner of the patent decides what you will pay. And that can decide whether you get the drugs or not. Now, when I was coming up here this morning, I read the Australian newspaper. And on page 25 of today's Australian newspaper is the following story. Marathon Pharmaceuticals will delay the launch of uh, an expensive muscular dystrophy drug amid mounting criticism of the US $89,000 a year price uh, for the availability of this drug. It apparently uh, relates to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a rare disease affecting about 12,000 boys in the United States. It's something that affects males. Uh, and uh, the company which was given the go-ahead um, a week ago by the uh, Food and Drug Administration in the United States has, uh, it was about to launch the availability of this wonder drug for 89,000 US dollars uh, per person per year. Uh, and um, this has upset the parents of the children with this relatively rare disease because they say, how are we going to get 89,000 US dollars, 116,000 for our little boy with muscular dystrophy, whereas until now, we've been smuggling it in from England where it was available for a US $12,000 annually. That is to say, no, $1,200 annually. $1,200 will suddenly go up to 89,000. And this is Marathon Pharmaceuticals. Now, there's such an outcry about this, both from Democrats and Republicans, that they're backed off their launch. But this is what the, uh, the ambassador from the Netherlands was saying to the high-level panel. He was saying, don't think this is just a problem for the budgets of poor countries. This is a problem for rich countries as well. And we have to get a better system than the present open market system. And I think this example from today's newspaper, take a look at it, have a look at it online. Marathon Pharmaceuticals will bring up the story. And it's the type of problem which will exist if the determination of the prices of pharmaceuticals is determined only by the market of those who own the patent and not by some other means which uh, pays due respect for uh, intellectual property but also for the right to health. 
So this is why this report is very important. Uh, and it's interesting, when we came to our decisions on the report, we had to choose between taking one of three courses. The first course was to take the course which the pharmaceutical industry said we should take. They said, this is an area where we have done the most remarkable things with cancer drugs and other drugs. Leave well alone. Don't interfere. It's important to have innovation. They didn't mention that we weren't very good at innovation if you happen to have conditions which are rare, like uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, or tropical, like Ebola or Zika, or don't have a big market impetus to develop the drug. But leave well alone is what, that, what we were told. The other view came from people in civil society who said, this is hopeless. We've never done what Eleanor Roosevelt co uh, contemplated. We've never reconciled I intellectual property and the fair rewards to inventors with the right of people to have access to health care that will make the difference between life and death, suffering and uh, feeling OK. And we should just tear up the current thing and start again. And the third view, which is the one I took and which the majority of the group took, was we should insist that we protect the right of countries faced with health care crises to call a national crisis for a particular health care and to impose obligations of compulsory licences so that they can deal with the health care crisis in a way that gives fair rewards, but not the $89,000 or the $84,000. Uh, and this is the recommendation that came to the report, up to the Secretary General. Looking back on it, I must say, there is a question when you face a problem like that. I, I admit it openly. The question is, do you take the chance that you have to take part in a report of this kind and say, this is hopeless and we've just got to take a radical new stance when you know that that will have the most powerful opposition and probably nothing will be done? Or do you take a middle course in which you endeavour to insist upon the respect for the current state of the law and the stopping of the bullying that has been done to countries to make them give away their insistence on uh, health crises and a special treatment for little boys with muscular dystrophy or unlovely people with hepatitis C um, virus. So uh, that is where we stand. Uh, there's going to be a meeting at the Human Rights Council on the 8th of March, and I will be going to that meeting and I will be given not half an hour or so to talk to you. I'm going to be given, I think, nine minutes to talk to the Human Rights Council of the United Nations of the world on what can be said about this problem and what we should be doing about it. And Madam Dreyfus will be there too, speaking for the same time to try and persuade the politicians and the nation states of the world. And I have to say to you, I've been greatly helped today by being here at QUT, 
by being here with uh, the leaders of the Australian Centre for Health Law uh, Research and by hearing the points of view of scholars from QUT, from Griffith, from the University of Canberra and other universities who are working in this area, we are really world top talent working in this area and it has been very helpful to me to conceptualise it and get it into a start to think of how one can present this briefly to busy people in the, in the um, uh, Human Rights Council. Now finally I said I would mention something about Bellagio. I take you back to the lake, to the mighty Alps, mountains, the beauties and the cold of uh, the Rockefeller Centre in Bellagio. And um, this is another case where the United Nations has been doing important work and really with hot potatoes. It's been addressing where the criminal law around the world is not conforming to universal human rights. And this has taken us into uh, drug, uh, the tr treatment of drug use, the treatment of suicide and assisted suicide, uh, and the treatment uh, in seven states of the United States, there are still criminal penalties for adultery. Just think if we had a law against adultery in Australia, uh, how many people might get caught up in that law? But they still have that in seven states of the United States, which I didn't know, and of course in many developing countries they have these uh, laws. Uh, but <clears throat> I think, uh, I can't go into the detail of that now because it's somewhat peripheral to the advertised program, but what I think is a good thing is that the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights has taken this on, just as Ban Ki-moon took on the issue of um, access to essential medicines. Uh, the easy thing in life is to do nothing. Then you upset, well, you upset some people, but you don't grapple with serious matters of injustice. I learned uh, at the meeting that on the night we were meeting in Bellagio to address this, in the United States of America, they have 1.5 million of their citizens in prison for drug offences. 1.5 million people. Uh, and if the purpose of the imprisonment for drug offences is to try and dissuade people from using drugs, then you'd think maybe 0.5 million, half a million, would be enough to make that point. But one and a half million people, and that's not mentioning state uh, offences. It's the, the second biggest industry in the United States is building jails. And this is uh, then raising the question, is this the right way to deal with the admitted problem of uh, some drugs and what we can do to deter their use? Or is that a kind of medical problem of personal uh, inadequacy or uh, failings? Are all of the 1.5 million really bad antisocial people? Or are they, as the research seems to suggest, people who have occasionally used drugs and get caught. I mean, 
where do you think all those drug halls go? They don't go into evil people who are in the back streets, they go to people in New Farm uh, and to people in Vaucluse and wealthy people who, who uh, use drugs uh, and if they're caught they go into prison often for very long times and in the United States 1.5 million of them. So the UN High Commission of Human Rights is now looking at this and looking at the issue, we didn't call it abortion, but the issue of women's reproductive rights and what the law says and what it should say. And the clash between people's religious beliefs and the human rights of other people and the power that some groups have over the human rights of others, including LGBT people, gay people. In many countries of the world, they're still locked up. So uh, I think it, it really is an instance where the UN has taken this on. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they should just forget about it and concentrate on things that will be easier. But in the area of the high-level panel and in the area of the uh, overreach of the criminal law, the UN is looking at these issues and taking really hard decisions. And whether anything will come of it will be decided by the nation states of the world but at least in the case of the high-level panel, the report is there and uh, it will now be uh, a matter of whether I can work out a way in nine minutes to persuade them to take it from the report into action uh, on the 8th of, of the 8th of March. So wish me good luck. Uh, I'm very grateful to you all for having me here. I think I've explained to you where I came from how I got involved, how uh, we looked at this in the Global Commission on HIV and the Law, how the Secretary-General, after a long delay of uncertainty, set up the high-level panel, how the high-level panel acted very promptly in the space of a year, how it didn't take the bold thrust but took a sort of centre ground, and how that is now before the world community, and how its urgency is demonstrated by the little case that I've mentioned to you in today's newspaper about muscular dystrophy uh, and how the Netherlands ambassador said, this isn't just a problem for Botswana. This is a problem for us all and we've got to find the solution. That's it. So we do have some time for questions, Michael, if you'd be open to... Okay. Now this is where I do my Jerry Springer act. And <laughs> up. Thank you so much. And you say it's, um, you know, not a problem. Well, it is a problem for everyone. It's particularly pertinent to me and my family. It is a problem for me because I, we have paid $135,000 for drugs from pharmaceutical companies to try to shrink tumors in the neck. They work. They shrink them by 70%, you know, after a period of time. Now, I don't want to go into details. We don't have time here. We're struggling month at a time to keep this person alive. There is another drug we're trying to get from America 
just heard we can't get it. Well, you know, you've got to buy it. But what I'm saying is it's not just a generic theoretical case. It's here with me in my family. And I actually spoke, and it says, your money or your life. You don't give that money. You don't get the drug. You die. This is a young woman who is a QT, was a QT student, did a PhD here. We didn't think she'd make her graduation. She did. We didn't think she'd make her birthday. She did. She fights every bit of the way. She's still fighting. She wants this next drug. To, she just heard this week that she can't get it. She can't get it into Australia. Um, look, it's, it's complicated, and I don't expect you to have answers, but I'm saying this is something we are fighting to try to have my only daughter stay alive. Yes. She's a young woman. She's vital. Um, and she has actually, her PhD is on young cancer patients. She traveled to New York and interviewed them. She traveled to Texas. She did, you know, Oxford, London. And she's got their stories, young survivors of cancer. And that's her PhD. She didn't think she'd make her graduation, but she did. I'm going into too much. She wouldn't want me to do this. <laughs> she wouldn't want me to do this. Well, I think every, that, that applause shows everyone in the That's audience respects you yes, and you. feels for you and for your daughter, and it's a very important issue. And I'm actually a patron of Rare Diseases Australia, it's which a is a cancer. body that deals with people yeah. with rare diseases, and it's, it's a particular problem, uh, as you've explained. Yes, it is. Um, and it's a problem not dissimilar from the problem that existed back in the 90s, when um, I knew 12 of my friends who died of AIDS. Yeah. And therefore, to me, uh, it was something which was a real presence. It wasn't a theoretical thing and it wasn't a statistical thing. It was something which really affected human beings. And then you come face to face with the issue. There is, of course, a question of what a society can afford. And back in those days of the HIV drugs, if it had stayed at $10,000, uh, we couldn't have afforded that uh, for every, H every patient. Maybe we would have been able to scrape it together in Australia, but in most countries in the world, no way. They couldn't have done it. So uh, the things we've been doing in the, uh, the high-level panel can't solve all the problems and can't solve the budgets of countries of the world and the amount of money that's available for drugs and experimental drugs of their nature are going to be often very expensive because uh, of the fact that they affect relatively few people. See, even that US muscular dystrophy, uh, I think the figure was 12,000 boys in the United States and in a big country of 360 million people, 12,000 is peanuts, it's not very many people, but it's a question of uh, the affront to the sense of fairness and decency of, of putting up the costs purely for uh, profits for shareholders, um, which are important, but is it being ploughed back into research and development? And I've, interestingly, in that article they said that Senator Bernie Sanders has got in on the act on this now, and he said he wants to know how much they spent on developing this drug. 
Why was it available in the UK for 1,200 and suddenly it's going to be, in the United States, to be lawful, it's going to be of the order of $89,000. I mean, such a huge difference. And we haven't done all that well in spending money on research and development, uh, as Zika and Ebola and others demonstrated, and as the multi-drug resistant tuberculosis demonstrates. So uh, it's a very complicated matter, and I know I tried to explain it, and I hope it wasn't too boring and too complicated, but at the end of the feeding chain are real live human beings who are good, kind, and loved by their families, and they deserve as much help as the, as the law and the society can afford to give them. And I think it's a great credit to the terminal government, I must say, that they made the decision that Australia would make the, the hepatitis C drug available to everybody in Australia. Um, and that was a, a big decision because this would be a group who wouldn't be particularly popular. These are people who've injected drugs and they've, they've uh, been in situations where they've got the hep C. Often prisoners get hep C. Uh, but they made that decision and that really is what our pharmaceutical benefit scheme was about and what our national health system was about, what the Americans don't have, but what we have, and it's a communitarian view of health, that we are all involved with each other and that it's not just a matter of making a lot of money, True. but it's a matter of trying to do the right thing as far as we can afford it to all of our citizens, including those who have rare diseases. So thank you for your intervention. Any other comments or criticisms? Hello. Um, your speech was inspiring. Thank you very much for giving it today. Um, the question I have is, how do you reconcile the, um, the rights of global pharmaceutical companies to um, earn the rewards from spending money on research and development for drugs and reconcile that for human people and their rights to health and cheap medicines so that they can get the help that they need. And where's the incentive for pharmaceutical companies to research on the, the pharmaceuticals that we need versus the pharmaceuticals for depression or um, other medications which people will take for a long time versus antibiotics that will take for a week? Yes. I hope they finish their course for a week because part of the problem with, <laughs> seriously, this is something we should all remember, finish the course because it's not finishing the course that leaves the problem untreated. You've got to kill off the bacterium or you've got to deal with the problem and finish the course. And I myself have had anti antibiotics and I felt good, why should I take the, I, I thought, uh, leave it to a time when I need them. But that's the wrong way. That's how the multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and the multi-drug resistant diseases grow up. Well, we've got to be uh, fair here. You know, they wouldn't have developed that drug for the tumour um, without money, spending money on the investment to do so. And therefore, We've got to really encourage, that's why I'm not against 
pharmaceutical companies. I'm certainly not against research. I, I saw something at, at QUT today that uh, of the new drugs, a third of them are developed in universities by public funding. And then when they get into private hands, you pay as a citizen twice. You paid for the investment in the universities, but then you end up paying again to the private investors who, who will reap the rewards. But if it were being ploughed back into research, you would be less worried than if it's, if it's not. And one of the, the discoveries in the high-level panel report is that there isn't enough being ploughed into um, drugs that will be of importance to all people. I mean, there's a lot of money being ploughed into face creams and to, uh, to things that'll rather firm you up a little bit. Uh, and um, I wouldn't be myself against spending money on depression because I know that, you know, when depression hits people, it, it's really a very bad story. And I, I heard today that there's quite a lot of depression amongst university students who are concerned about their futures and whether they'll have jobs. And, and that's a serious business. So we need to not put mental health into a category where, well, that's not something we can see like a boil, um, but it's something we can feel if, if we're exposed to stress, pressure and depression. But uh, getting, making sure that we have a system that spends money on research and development. That's a really important objective, and that's an objective of the high-level panel. Yes. I've got to be careful to not compare apples with oranges here. But for starters, I've got nothing against uh, pharmaceutical companies. Unfortunately, I did economics a few years ago. And part of my research in development economics um, brought out the unconscionability of um, companies way before uh, AIDS and things like that were prominent. They were basically dumping uh, uh, bad medicines into third world countries and what have you. Now, they're oligopolies or monopolies, but that's fair enough and they need to spend money on research, but the same could be said for computer companies, telephone companies, and obviously we know that but the product gets cheaper. special about pharma because they're dealing with our very body, our life, our feelings, our survival, uh, our happiness, uh, and therefore I, I think this is it's something very intimate and involved in our person, and therefore I think uh, it does raise some special issues and, and it's not being well handled at the moment. Mm. We were very strongly attacked by the United States of America and this was under the Obama administration. So we're waiting now for the, the storm. Uh, and, but though Mr Trump did say that he was going to make sure America had the best health, public health system in the world, and that uh, pharma was not going to be able to rip off the United States. So it's going to play out in some very unusual... He sometimes says things and he doesn't really deliver on them, but we'll just have to watch this space. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line is we do need research. Eleanor Roosevelt was right. 
those who do the research should get just rewards. But the type of figures that I've been mentioning in those three instances I gave you tonight uh, are, I think, an illustration of the truth of what the Netherlands ambassador... My partner is from the Netherlands. Uh, they are very difficult people. <laughs> they are very inclined to call a spade a spade and to be very blunt. And when the Americans were attacking us, the Netherlands got up and they said, you know, this is not just the, 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 the poor countries, this is us. And I think uh, this is something we in Australia have to understand. It's, it's really for, for uh, Australia uh, as well as other countries. Anyway, uh, is there another question right up the back there? Yes. This may have to be the yes. last question. Thanks. Uh, I was just wondering whether you'd like to comment about um, the role of improving the regulatory environment around pharmaceutical companies in terms of their um, publication of studies, the publication of their results, because we know um, from work that's been done in recent years that they do research studies and hide them. They do research on, on drugs and only publish the studies that show a fantastic result and the studies that say that there's no difference between this new drug and the old drug um, get quietly tucked into a drawer. Um, it, we it, we, the dealt, result we of the dealt with this in our report and we said there has to be a whole lot more transparency about uh, the in, in investment in research and development and the consequences of research and development in this business of keeping it all cloaked mm. uh, and trying to do so for financial profits uh, instead of for the advancement of knowledge and science. Mm. Um, this is the commercialisation of an area that is not entirely suitable for commercialisation. There, there is there's a need for some commercialisation, but um, uh, the amount spent on advertising, the amount of spent on marketing, the amount... If you go, if you go to America, you, you switch on the television, it goes on and on, and then at the end of it they say, you must not take this in you, Louis, if you take this drug, they give you a little burst about all the dangers of the drug, and I don't know how they can possibly say it so quickly, but that's how it is. It's, it's advertising and sponsoring and... It also ends up that we, um, as a society, end up spending money on drugs that are not effective. Um, so some of the health budget is going towards treatments which, in reality, don't actually do what they're promised. Yes. Yes, well, uh, we were conscious of that, but we did try to address that in the report. You can get the report online, high-level panel on access to essential health care. Now, I think we've... We've got near to the end because we promised we would finish at 6.30. What is the time now? Uh, it is 6.30, Jake. It's 6.28. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Is there one more brilliant and preferably, if it can be so, uh, a, a witty question? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, I don't think there are any more. Oh, actually. Oh, right. Sorry. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask, with the report, 
what are the outcomes or what are the main outcomes that you're hoping for and which do you think will actually happen? I wish I was here speaking this afternoon about North Korea because in the case of the North Korea report, it has had the strongest support ever from the United Nations. It had the strongest report in the Human Rights Council, the strongest report of the General Assembly, and even the, the strong support of the, of the Security Council, which is very unusual in a human rights type area. In this case, it's very controversial. There was a meeting uh, in the last couple of weeks of the executive board of the World Health Organization. And a number of countries, led by India, endeavored to get the World Health Organization to put the high-level panel report on the agenda of the executive board of the World Health Organization, which you'd think would not be such a big ask, given its importance for world health. But they said, we've got a very busy agenda. We won't get through it if we do it. No, we won't add it as an agenda item, but you can raise it under different agenda items. So then the world divided. The United States attacked the report and said they didn't like the examples we gave. They thought they were biased. Uh, and uh, Europe, the e European Union, and Switzerland, uh, and Japan also criticised the report. And they are big farmer investment innovating countries. On the other hand, the Netherlands came to the, the fore again and criticised its uh, developed countries and said, this is, you're wrong. This is about all of us. And of course, Brazil, Vietnam, uh, and all the other developing countries came in behind the high level panel. So I don't know where it's going to go yet, but the Human Rights Council has put it on its agenda. It's going to be there on the 8th uh, of March, and uh, it's, it's not in the nature of Mrs. Dreyfus to give up. She's very tough. So is Festus Mogai, and if I can humbly say so, so am I. <laughs> and we're, we're going to keep at it. And sometimes in these things, the result is not immediate. But if you plant the seed of the idea that this is an area where uh, bullying countries to give away their entitlement to call for uh, emergency situations to deal with emergency health problems uh, is not on. And the World Trade Organization has to insist on that and uh, sanction countries uh, like the United States that has done that and like the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that wanted to do it to Vietnam to give away their capacity to deal with uh, issues of essential health care there. Uh, I didn't weep any tears when Mr. Trump said he didn't want to go ahead with that. So um, this, this is a messy area, and it's a complicated area, and it's a slightly boring area. So I think you're a wonderful audience that you've actually sat there, you've listened, you've appreciated, you understand, it's complicated, there won't be any magic solutions all at once, but the seed is planted. And the haunting words of the Netherlands, this is not just about those poor people, this is about us all. And uh, I've learned in my life the people of the Netherlands often speak the truth. And 